kind of sounds like um, one big frog in a field of smaller frogs, and the one big frog's like smacking its lip. <laughs> <laughs> it's very atmospheric, cool, very atmospheric recording. Yeah, it's quite a lot going that's on. That's what really drew me to be fair. I'm trying to think about what that frog is it all one thing like all the groans and the clicks are all one animal like obviously there's multiple individuals but are they all one creature I, I they... am woefully ignorant of which bit of that call is actually pertaining to the frog of interest I assume the larger clicks <laughs> because they're the most sort of apparent in the recording so yeah I can only assume the sort of background noise is other frogs providing ambiance. hmm uh You've got no chance, mate. It's so niche. I've got no idea. Uh, I'm going to just guess it's a toad. That's all I can think no. of. Just go toad. It's not even a toad. This was Leptopalis viridus. Because I wanted ah, to so it's... bring in some more sort of ambiance. We had our species of bi-week last episode with a distinct lack of beautiful picture of, of habitat, but also a distinct lack of cool, despite it, it's meant to be available, but I can't find it in bloody... Phono bank. So I went. Phono bank's a myth, mate. It, I, it feels it like it at this point. Any, I don't know I've if there's a delay them. until they're available. I know some of them are just not available unless you request them specifically, and I just don't understand how that's a that's a thing. I just I've almost given up. The amount of times I've downloaded pictures of calls expecting them to be audio yeah, is just way too high as well. It's super frustrating. So I went and got the next best thing with Leptopalis viridis off Fibia web. And they were about a similar sort of size. What was that, like? Three four to four centimetres. Yep. They're sort of greeny, too. What's a little bit ridiculous is how little there seems to be on them. <laughs> so they're called <laughs> the rusty forest tree frog or the savannah tree frog. And they're just... I could find no particularly meaningful information about their ecology or anything. Where are they? West Africa? Yeah, all across West Africa. Everywhere from, like, Senegal all the way down to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Even in, like, Sudan. So, like, across Africa. Wow, yeah, that is That's an outrageous range. Mm, Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder whether it's been split up or something. I don't know. Very elongate tadpoles, apparently. That's something to know about. (laughs) Gosh, that's elongate. Yeah. Okay, wicked. So, well, that was a fun one. Anyway, I like that you managed to find a call of Leptopelis. Maybe I will try and remember the name of that. It's not like I had a choice either. I went looking for Leptopelis and this is all I got. Well, I think it's a success then, all in all. So, after Leptopelis, we're actually going to transfer over. We're doing a patron episode this week and this patron episode is for Jafe. So... Thanks very much, Jay, for supporting the podcast and being general champion of the podcast and, yeah, picking a cool topic. So Jay wanted an episode about Rankinia, which are these kind of little agamid lizards. And, they're lovely. Uh, yeah, they are. They're really quite cool. They're from, like, Australia, like New South Wales, Tasmania, the island, and also Victoria. And yeah, we managed to, well, Jafe actually suggested us a couple of papers which resulted from the thesis of Dr. Stuart Smith. So these papers going back a little bit in time. But yeah, I just thought it would be cool to just talk about these weird little lizards that neither of us were really that familiar with. Um, Mm -hmm. Just sort of go into what they get up to, what they're about. Yeah, there's a little bit about them. They're, They're unusual for a few reasons, but they're just fun little lizards. So 
I think if we start off by introducing a paper and then we'll introduce the other one sort of like midway through, but we're not really going to be focusing on them that hard because they're pretty straightforward, to be fair. But this one is Stuart Smith, Stuart Smith, Swain, Wapstra, 2008, size dimorphism in Rankinia, Dimensis, sex-specific patterns and geographic variation, published in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. So we've got these Australian and Tasmanian lizards. They're real spiky little things, aren't they? Very short heads. They're really well camouflaged. They're generally pretty dark in colour, but they can be quite variable. They can even be like brown, red. Most of the time they're grey or sort of... um, Sometimes they're almost like a bluey colour, but usually they're grey. And they have this striking back pattern, which has like a big fat zigzag in the centre of a really bold stripe. Makes me think that they live in some sort of rocky rocky environment makes me think of a sort of saxicolous lifestyle (laughs) yeah i can see that and the back has this like fat pattern down the back and this is rankinia dimensis and um yeah the legs are different so they have this fat zigzag on the back but then the legs have like a pattern going across them the other way to the body and um when you see them on the floor it makes them really hard to focus on because there's like no congruence between the pattern of the legs and the body they look like they're parts of separate animals and i can imagine that difficulty that i'm experiencing focusing on the lizard also translates to their predators i totally see what you mean yes i while you're doing that i was just looking at pictures to give myself more of a reference i think it's aided by this sort of lateral stripe that sort of brings in this break point that isn't the edge Mm. of the lizard it's an interesting bit of cryptosis They look super cryptic. Yeah. That pattern is also popular on chameleons. <laughs> popular. All the hip yeah. chameleons have it these days. Chameleons love this one pattern. And yeah, I don't know if we mentioned the common name, but they're called mountain dragons, which is also a name which is given to chameleons. So the chameleon similarities just keep on flowing. That's weird. There's a book by uh, Jan Stapala, who's a friend of mine and former supervisor called In Search of Mountain Dragons. But not these Or is it Mountain Dragons? It's called Mountain Dragons In Search of Chameleons in the Highlands of Kenya. And it's a magical book with amazing images. But yeah, Mountain Dragon. Not a coincidence. Anyway, so we got a scientific name here, Rankinia Dimensis. So it's actually a really sad story behind this. And, you know, we're not big fans of patronyms on this podcast, generally speaking, but this one's got a bit of a tragedy behind it. So the genus is named after an Australian herpetologist by the name of Peter Rankin, who died in January 1979. He actually died in New Caledonia. He was on a trip to try and catch geckos. And yeah, he'd just finished his Bachelor of Arts in Science. And he was actually on the island to do a feasibility study, whether or not they were going to be able to do some like detailed work on the islands, herpetofauna. And yeah, you know, really promising herpetologist, only 23 when he died. So that's really sad. And they've actually named a couple of species as well after the Peter. They've got Diplodactylus rankini from Western Australia, which is a gecko, and a skink called Nanoskinkus rankini from New Caledonia, which is quite apt. Nanoskinkus? Yeah, Nanoskinkus rankini. Tiny skink? It must mean that, yeah. Amazing. He's got some. Yeah, Sorry to very, completely very... derail what no, you were saying. But I, no, no, no. I just have never heard of that genus before, and no, neither. It's got I. such a com- random, compellingly straightforward name. Yeah, so you know, a bit of a tragedy tied up in Rankinia, but the gen- that's the generic name. But the species epithet, Dimensis, that is pretty cool. So DM, obviously Carpe Diem. Wait, what does Carpe Diem actually mean? Seize the does day. It mean seize the day. Yeah. yeah so 
DM is day. I was like, what? Yeah, carpe DM sees the day. But this is DM ensis. So DM is day and ensis is dweller. So the day dweller, oh. which is quite nice. And ironically, they're nocturnal. <laughs> no, that would that'd be, oh no, that'd be a disaster. That'd be silly. But the reason they're day dwelling, or probably a good, what goes a sort of good length of the way to explain it, is the fact that they live in places which are actually pretty cold. So one of the places they're found is the Blue Mountains in Australia, and it's actually genuinely cold there. It can snow there. We don't usually associate Australia with snow. Nor lizards. No, nor lizards with snow. One of the coldest places in Australia. And this is actually the southernmost member of the family Agamidae in the world. And yeah, it occupies some really cold habitats. If it's the southernmost member of Agamidae, does that essentially make it the southernmost lizard? Oh gosh, now that's a good question, isn't it? Maybe there's something on the on the end of South America that could Leolamus, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I think yeah. They're endemic to South America. Okay, okay. So it's it's almost got that the crown of most southernly lizard, but not quite. Yeah, they're found all the way down to the Tierra del Fuego. Okay, so right to the... Okay, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Tippity-tippity-tip. Good question, though. And, yeah, it's proper cold. But here's a question for you, Ben. Little quiz. You weren't expecting this, were you? You thought you could relax. Yeah, I'm already... I'm so, always ready for quizzes. <laughs> okay, so of Tasmania's 17 lizard species... Yep. Rankinia dimensis, the mountain dragon, yep. is the only one which is not what? Um... <laughs> um, viviparous. Oh, it's a good guess. It might be true. <laughs> no, I think oh, good. An answer so confusing that it's that it's thrown you off. <laughs> no, the answer is a skink. Oh, what are the others? All the other lizards on Tasmania are skinks. Are you asking me what all the other the other sixteen are? Yeah. I don't know. I didn't write that down. Come on, man. <laughs> None of them are nano skinkers, are they? No, I don't think so. I think Nano Skinkus is... Oh, I don't know, mate. Nano Skinkus is from New Caledonia, so I'm assuming it's endemic to New that Caledonia. That would make sense, yeah. yeah. But, you know, <laughs> the only non-skink bit... was the outcome of that quiz. <laughs> yeah, Nano Skinkus is in fact endemic to uh, New Caledonia, so that's case closed on that one. And yeah, Rankinia dimensis, the only Tasmanian lizard that is not a skink, which is, you know, interesting. And these guys are weird because Agamids generally, the family Agamidae, are usually distributed in hot, arid or tropical regions. And these cool climates in Tasmania are kind of quite extreme. Yeah. And um, they actually result in a greatly reduced activity season. So these guys hibernate for a long time, like seven months. And um, that's a lot more hibernation than the skinks do. The skinks are a little bit more active. And as you said, they're saxicolous. They live on rocky outcrops. And I had a little check of the weather on Tasmania's central plateau, which is where one of the places these guys were found. Yesterday I did this. And it was one degree Celsius and it was cloudy. One degree? Basically, one degree, yeah. Isn't it the middle of summer? It should be like the opposite of here, right? But was that a nighttime temperature? Yeah, it must have been because I was probably doing it at like... I would have been doing it in the morning. So that would have been like, mm, yeah, late night or slash early morning in Tasmania. There you go. But still pretty cold. Exceptionally cold for a lizard. Yeah. yeah. So basically the same weather. Yeah, it's basically the same weather that we've been having in the UK. So no oh, one no, of it's these much things warmer than that. Well. I was out in negative seven yesterday. 
Negative seven. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, world record. I've never experienced that cold. Well, it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, horrible. Yeah, so I was also curious, like, one of the places I found is this Cape Deslax Reserve. Cape, that's not how you pronounce that. Cape Deslax Reserve. Clifton Beach, which is in southeast Tasmania. One of these studies we're talking about took place there. And I was kind of curious, like, what's the vibe? What's it like down there? So I fired up Google Earth. I went down there. You went for a little look. rummage. Yeah, I did. And um, I can report back. It's quite scrubby. Scrubby's mm. how I describe it. It looks like a sort of sandy, windswept heathland near the beach. That sounds like a Saxicolis lizard's sort of paradise, if you ask me. Yeah. And so the paper that I introduced earlier was to do with the sexual dimorphism, so the difference in size between male and female of this species, mountain dragon. And um, generally speaking, female agamids are larger. No, they're not. That's atypical. Yes. Not typical. It's atypical for the females to be larger. Usually the males are bigger, probably because the males have just got beef with each other all the time. Yeah, the idea and, is um, that there's a selection pressure to be bigger and tougher. So when you're fighting over mates or territorial resources or something, you have the upper hand. That's the general sort of thing that drives male bias sexual dimorphism. Most yeah. of the time, I think. I'm sure there's some weird exceptions, but most of the time that's the idea. Yeah, and there was a paper by Shine et al. in 98, and they did a bunch of size dimorphism stuff with agamids, and it was like only 3 out of 21 agamid species had <coughs> uh, females larger than males, which is, you know, it means it's quite unusual. And um, as you've just said, like male-male competition generally drives males being bigger, and the opposite of that, the antithesis, is female-biased sex dimorphism, where the females are bigger, and generally this is explained by the fecundity advantage hypothesis. How many offspring they can have. Yeah, more yep. babies equals more lizards equals more success. Yep. 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 And they actually tested that in this species in a different paper in 2007 by Stuart Smith et al. again, and... Um, yeah, they actually found a strong relationship between maternal body size and how many babies they could make. And they actually provided the explanation and the evidence for why female size is under selection. And it is because they can have more babies. So that's quite nice. Which, quite a nice little... When you think about it. a very harsh environment that these, these lizards are occupying, harsh for, harsh for lizards, I suppose, with the temperatures, is if you've got a very limited window to lay your eggs and reproduce and whatnot you can imagine that you want to maximize energy to up your chances there and there's almost not less of a less of an opportunity for elaborate make mate competition if your active season is so short right there's no time to mess about yeah stop your fighting winter's coming again yeah and it's interesting you say that because um obviously living in these harsh cooler climates there's a variation in the kind of extremes of weather that these things have to tolerate, the extremes of climate. And there's actually quite a lot of geographic variation in how big these mountain dragons are. So the ones that are fortunate enough to find themselves in low elevation, where it's sort of a bit warmer, tend to be larger. Um, and presumably they also have a little bit less time hibernating because it's mm -hmm. a bit milder yeah. and they're a bit closer to the coast. And so yeah, it's possible that they kind of get bigger because they've got more time to forage and they're subject to sort of less harsh conditions, whereas... In places where it's higher altitude and colder, they tend to be shriveled and small, which is harsh for these poor little lizards. Um, we've kind of sort of bust into this other paper a little bit. Well, they're very complimentary, aren't they? Um, they're camouflage. So um, although, you know, as we've said, they are quite well camouflaged and sort of we find it difficult to um, 
actually focus on looking at one, they're sort of a little bit dazzling, a little bit, just a little bit magical. Magic eye lizards, yeah. Yeah, and um, obviously they rely heavily on that camouflage to avoid detection. But if you're a mountain dragon, it also employs some other cryptic behavior. So when it's not needing to, it just stays motionless, right? So if it's not doing anything, it will just stay still. There's no moving unless it's like caught, like there's a need for it. Yeah, energy efficient. Yeah, apparently observers have said that if you're looking at a lizard, it seems like they're trying not to make a breath movement. Like they're trying to breathe without their sort of body expanding and contracting. Well, why would you keep looking at them, at them then, poor little guys? <laughs> yeah, let <laughs> Holding breathe, their breath. monster. Yeah, just nervous. And then when you approach them, they have these funny little defense mechanisms. When approached, it will typically run a short distance before stopping abruptly, right? So mm. it'll just do a little dart. And because the sudden stop is unexpected and they don't stop when they've reached cover, they just randomly stop in the open. And your instinct as the predator is to kind of follow the direction of movement. Yes. And if you do that, you follow the direction of movement, but then you can't find the lizard again. It's like you follow where the lizard should have gone. It's not there. You go to look back and it's suddenly all of its camouflage has kicked yeah. in and you can't locate it again, which is pretty cool. I'm sure there's a proper name for that technique. I'm sure there must be. I think you might be thinking of flicker fusion. Perhaps. That sounds quite good. It sounds fun, doesn't it? I can't quite remember what that means. So this flicker fusion camouflage, right? This The idea behind it is that high contrast patterns, when they're moving at speed, blur. And so right. that kind of like changes the appearance of the prey. And it's not really understood well. It's a bit confusing. But and yeah. they have this high contrast zigzaggy pattern on their back. Yeah. And they do have so areas the of white, they have areas of black, they've got areas of sort of middling greys and browns. Yeah, okay. I mean, you, you can see it's sort of getting there. Are you saying it's yeah, not we talked... easy to understand? No, it's like, not. I, I think it's just something which scientists aren't really big on yet. Like, it's this idea that it's a thing. It's probably very hard to quantify its impact because you'd need a very good idea of the visual sort of acuity of your predator to be able to work out how mm. effective it is. Seems very... Yeah, it's, it's all about perception as opposed to like, okay, a colour's very bright. That's quite easy to ID, but like perception is a whole other level. Yeah. And I remember we were talking about this in the context of um, zebras a while ago. And actually... Right, yeah. I think I retweeted it because it was a super cool paper. They basically recently found that biting insects like bloodsuckers, yep. when they get really close to the skin of a zebra, they can't land on it. It's like... It bamboozles It spins them, them out. Yeah. Yeah, it fully bamboozles them. And so, yeah, they think it's like this adaptation to confuse the eye of biting insects when they get close. It may also have a flicker fusion camouflage thing, but I know we've talked about that in the context of flicker fusion where like, I don't know, though, is it really that hard to spot a zebra? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's when they're in a gang, I don't know. Well, there's a difference between spotting something and being able to predict its movements in such a way to capture it and subdue it. Because, I mean, that's Mm. what we're talking about here with the lizard is, okay, you've spotted a lizard, you're chasing lizard. Lizard just has to do enough to break that ability to predict its next move, because that's when you're going to get got, is something be able to predict where you're going to be and therefore be there at the same time to get you. So I don't think it requires much to break that connection, because it's such a precise, like, visual hand-eye coordination task that it's probably quite sensitive to any sort of interruption. Hmm. Yeah, so maybe these guys are employing maybe, fusion. Maybe. I mean, it's quite a leap for us to say, but um, 
it's yeah. intriguing. But just to touch on this paper, I mean, it was all just about the uh, reproductive ecology. They lay eggs. Males come out before females, presumably because they have to bask and start spermatogenesis, which is uh, the making of sperms. And um, that's pretty common in cold animals, cold dwelling animals like adders. It's it's always the males that you see first. Um, females emerge later because it's not quite so urgent for the uh, eggs to start moving around and then they can actually lay two clutches in one year which is pretty impressive for an animal that lives somewhere cold you know they lay between two and eleven and then they can store the sperm and lay another clutch around five weeks later if they've had enough dinner presumably so yeah they're plucky little creatures yeah (laughs) living super far south it is they're impressive yeah but no it's been fun to dive into the uh, ecology and behavior of uh, rankinia diamensis the old mountain dragon. And I know that Jafe has got a couple of them on his desk. He, I think he rescued from somewhere. I'm not quite sure what the story behind those is. But yeah, really nice, really nice, fascinating lizards. And uh, yeah, it's been nice to sort of dig into them. I'd really like to see some more work on these guys, especially to do with their camouflage. That's really, yeah, they're an really tickled my fancy. species and an intriguing sort of setup, isn't it? They're, yeah. Especially with the mainland island contrast as well. Because you'd mm. expect different predators and things going on between mainland and uh, Tasmania, I would suspect. So, have you got any other business for this episode? I do. I have one short uh, bit of good news. Do you remember the Union Island Gecko? (laughs) No, sorry. You should look it up. It's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Described in 2005, basically it got hammered by the pet trade because of how beautiful it was. Oh, these things. Wow, I didn't even know they were real. That's crazy. Yes, very real had a big reduction in their numbers there was a, apparently a study in 2017 that sort of suggested they were the most most traded reptile coming out of the caribbean at the time but the good news is there seems to have been an 80 percent increase in their population since the down times so they're back up to 18,000 individuals it seems so big leap they're properly protected now they're included in uh, sort of cites protection stuff and it seems like sort of regulation and protection is helping their world populations and it and they're bouncing back so it's this nice nice example of a bit of conservation good news that these guys yeah <laughs> numbers on the rebound which is really great news they're tiny right i'm on this website here faunaflora.org i think they're quite tiny yeah it says here there's some union island gecko facts oh yeah the first one the union island gecko weighs less than a pinch of salt <laughs> What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what an abstract what measurement to have non, chosen. Such a non-fact. <laughs> Could have just given it in grams. That's so crazy. Like, also, a pinch of salt is nothing. Like, how can a lizard weigh less than that? I don't know I how big, that. and it depends how big your fingers are, isn't it? Yeah, well, I've got sort of pretty moderate-sized appendages here, and I feel like a lizard that weighs as little as that can scarcely exist. <laughs> how small are they? Three cent, Three centimetres. Good God. So maybe they do weigh as much as a pinch of salt. I feel like this whole website is just a massive exaggeration. I wouldn't trust anything that's that's giving you weight in pinches of salt. (laughs) That's absurd. It's a measure of volume at the very best. Yeah, that's just nuts. What is the common name for it? Union Island Gecko. Union Island Gecko. They like dry forests. Yeah, I can't get a good answer on how big they actually are. Have to go. Either way, that's nice to hear that they're doing better. Yes, they are doing much better. Yes. That's good. 
I don't have any other business this week. That's it. Okay. I think that's it. I think that's it for the Excellent. episode. So, um, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com if we've got anything wrong, if you want to correct us on something, or if um, you just want to send us an email, shoot us a line. We're also on social media. Quite easy to find on there. So, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>